you have your Bible, we're finishing up chapter 1 today in Philippians, verses 27 through 30. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and all of that is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul has brought us to this point by first of all identifying who wrote it. He gives a salutation. He reminds us of who those, those ones who are hearing it and reading it. He then gives a note of thanksgiving. He expresses a prayer for these believers, and as up to this point, he now has reported his current situation and his future prospects. Paul now turns his attention to those believers in Philippi. Now, the key word of these verses is the first word of verse 27. It's the word only. Only. That word underscores his unwavering expectation for his Philippian friends, whatever the outcome of his own life. Whether he returns to see their faith in action, he remains at a distance and only hears reports about them, or even dies by Caesar's sword, their focus must be on remaining faithful as citizen soldiers in courageous unity, so as to bring credit to the distant and majestic capital that defines their privileged status, not Rome, but heaven. Those are the words of Philip Johnson. I've done some teaching. I've been a boss. And I am a parent. My kids are out of the house, but I remember those days. And each of those three occupations, at times, can get very apprehensive when they walk out of the room, can't they? Leave your children in a room, they're scurrying around, you walk out, you wonder, hmm, what are they going to get into now? Or the boss walks in the room and you weren't working real hard, but now all of a sudden he walks out of the room and he may have some apprehension, well, I wonder what goes on when I'm not there. And certainly as a teacher, I still do a lot of teaching. That happens all the time. Well, is it possible, someone has asked, that Paul kind of had that apprehension? He's away from them. He's concerned about them, and as good as the church is, as deeply as they love him, as kindly as they have acted toward him, as kind and generous as they have been to him, he still knows that in his absence, things could go south. We've sung the song, you've sung the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, that's the, the, even the renewed heart. There's a proneness there that we have to guard against. Paul had this same attitude toward other believers. 
You remember in Acts chapter 20, as he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, he says in verses 29 and 30, I know that when I leave, fierce wolves are going to come in among you, not even sparing the flock. And from among, notice, your own selves from within, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Paul was a realist. When he wrote to Galatians, you remember what he said? I am astonished that you so quickly deserted him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not just the fact that they're doing it, but they're doing it so soon after he left. Hebrews 2, the writer says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. There is that proneness, and Paul is away from them, and it's possible, I'm not saying definitely, but it's possible that he has some apprehension. He is greatly concerned about the testimony of Christ at Philippi. He's concerned about this church whether or not he is there with them. And so in this section, verses 27 through 30, he calls on the Philippians to behave in a way that will match what they say, to be consistent in their life according to their message. He is calling for integrity, consistency, commitment, and credibility in their lives. And he says, whether I'm there or not. He's concerned about the testimony of Christ there. He's concerned about the church. So he calls on them in this section to behave in a way that will match their message. To behave in a way that's consistent with what they're saying. He's calling for integrity, something that seems to be absent in our culture from the top down. He's calling for spiritual commitment. He's calling for credibility in conduct. And he says, doesn't matter if I'm there or not. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, that word only is very important. It's the key word. It's the key word through this whole context. In the Greek language, the most important thing is put at the beginning of the sentence. And the word only is in the emphatic or right at the beginning of the sentence in the Greek language. That makes it very, very important and is emphasizing what Paul's really trying to say here. Up to this point, Paul has given kind of an autobiographical account of what he's going through. He's telling them about his joy, even in the midst of being in prison. But he's no longer concerned about himself. He's now concerned about them. And he wants them to look in their own hearts and see, make sure there's spiritual integrity in their hearts. Remember in the prior passage, Paul shared his dilemma. And his dilemma was what? You remember? I got these two choices. Stay here with you because that's really necessary. But to go home and be with the Lord, that's really what I want. So he rationed or reasoned through that. He came to a conclusion on that. Both of them were strong desires, even to the point he said, I'm really not sure which to choose. But however sure he is in his heart that he will live a little while longer, remember he said, I'll be around. And it's believed anywhere from maybe three to five years longer, Paul was still around. But the need of the church is his great concern, not himself. They must make sure that their conduct and behavior, and I think the word here in the ESV Bible is your manner of life. Did you see that? Verse 27, only let your manner of life, your conduct your behavior, let it be consistent with your profession. What is most important is not that they see Paul, but that people see Christ in them. 
Philippians chapter 2, he'll say these words in verses 15 and 16. So that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, not sinless, but without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you are to shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Ephesians chapter 1, he said the same thing to those folks. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He puts it this way. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The idea is to model the gospel. Don't just spew it. Live it. Remember his commendation to the church at Thessalonica? Chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much affliction. Didn't have a nice church service like this to receive the word. It was in a great conflict. But you did it with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you have become an example to all the believers in Achaia and Macedonia. And not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but also your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't have to say anything. Paul could have been visiting another village and the Thessalonian believers, the Thessalonian church, be brought up in conversation and someone would say, oh, we know about those people. Those, those folks are for real. They are what we might call true Christians, not Christians in name only. Now, the word worthy here, worthy is a Greek word, axios, and it means weighing something on a scale. It means my manner of life weighs as much as the gospel I proclaim that I'm committed to. Balanced. This is what I say, and this is what I do. Not this way. You've heard of Tony Evans, maybe? African-American preacher in Texas. He wrote a book. I read it back in the 1990s. You know what the name of the book was? And the title. I often do this. I see a title, not even sure what it's about. I got to read that just because of the title. They're good at doing that for people like me. You know what the name of the book was? Are Christians Destroying America? Oh, that'd be a good conversation piece in a small group, wouldn't it? So what's the problem? Well, it's the Democrats, and it's the liberals, and it's the progressive. They're destroying our culture. No, they're not. If the church of Jesus Christ would live like they preach, things would be different. I challenge you to read that book. It's a, it's a barn burner. It's an in-your-face kind of book. It really convicted me of my life. John MacArthur says this, verse 27, in a manner worthy of the gospel, it means consistent with what we know, consistent with what we teach, consistent with what we preach, consistent with what we say we believe. That's integrity. The thing that is stripping the church today of all of its credibility is that it says one thing and does another thing. It lives one way and preaches another way. I'm going to go out on a limb here a little bit. Does the Bible say that homosexuality is a sin? Okay, and it does. And so those churches that represent the Word of God will be ordaining people of that lifestyle and put them in front of people to teach the Word of God. Is there something wrong with that? 
What's wrong with that picture? Well, you know what's wrong with that picture. It is only, using the word that Paul used at the beginning of verse 27, it is only when the church, those who are truly born again, live true to their message, only when it embodies or lives out what it says it believes that it will have an integrity. And only when it has integrity is its message clear and believable. The greatest weapon the church has is its integrity. And when the church does not conduct itself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, it cuts itself up in terms of its ability to be a whole person representing the body and the person of Christ. We as a church, the body of Christ, Christians cannot live beneath our theology, says John. Paul insists on this highest standard. Says Paul, you must live in such a way that you're consistent with what you say. And that is a crucial issue in the church today. Folks, the professing, in my opinion, the professing church in America is impotent. It is dismissed. It is relegated to unimportant. We don't even have a voice in the marketplace. They're dismissing us. Why? Because there's no power in our lives or in our churches, in our witness. Why? Because we don't have any integrity. When Paul mentions the gospel of Christ, he's referring to the good news of salvation, the good news of eternal life that God has sent His Son into the world, that men can be saved from sin and live holy lives. And the church has got to live that out, that we have been delivered from darkness to light, from sin to righteousness. We have to live that out in a day-to-day -day way, reality. And what is the essence of that? 2 Corinthians 5.17 if anyone is in Christ, they're what? A new creation. That Greek word there is not taking a fence that's all broken down with termites and putting a new coat of paint on it. It's ripping that thing out and putting a whole new fence in there. Brand new person. Old things have passed. New things have come. And what does the gospel tell us? It tells us that people are transformed into a new life. And they should live that new life consistent with what has happened. You see, people look at the church, and I'm talking broadly, those who profess to know God, they hear us preaching the gospel. But they don't see lives that reflect holiness, virtue, and salvation from sin. And so what's their conclusion? Your gospel is no different than any other religion. By the way, that ain't good news to me. They see pastors living in immorality. They see church people living in immorality. They see people cheat. They see people lie. They see people steal, those who call themselves Christians. And they say, so, what message do you have to offer me? Why, I have a, I have a message of deliverance from sin. Really? You don't look very delivered. The life of the Christian, the life of the church must demonstrate the gospel that we have been taken from the power of sin to the power of righteousness. So this main verb in this one long sentence is telling us to do that. A fellow by the name of Miano, I think that's his name, M-I-A-N-O, I quote, God's salvation granted to believing sinners through the work of Christ deserves our uncompromising, unmitigated, and undying commitment to live a life that's consistent with our profession. Only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then throughout the rest of the section, he answers the question, well, how is that worthy behavior seen? 
and you can remember it all with the same letter, SSS. Standing, striving, and suffering. Standing, striving, and suffering. The first thing is found in verse 27. The second part, I use A, B's, and C's when I break verses up. And so the second part of verse 27 says this, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. The word there that we could give to that phrase is perseverance. Charles Spurgeon said this about perseverance, and I quote, Conversion is a turning into the right road, but you also need to walk on it. The daily going on in that road is as essential as the first starting point when you get on it. To strike the first blow is not at all the battle. To him who overcomes, the crown is promised. To start in the race is nothing. Many have done that, but they've petered out. But to hold out until you reach the winning post, that's the great point of the matter. Perseverance, listen, perseverance is as necessary to a man's salvation as conversion. Let me say that again. Perseverance is as necessary to a man's salvation as conversion. But some who run well at first have hardly enough breath to keep the pace up. They turn aside for a little while for comfortable ease and don't get on the road again. Such people are not genuine Christians. They are only men-made, self-made Christians. And these self-made Christians never hold on, and they can't hold on, because time wears them out, and they turn back to their former lifestyle. Whoa! Standing firm. The word there in the Greek is steko. It's a military term. It has two ideas. It first of all speaks about a military formation of troops where they stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder, back to back with their shields up and their spears out. It's the strongest possible defensive position for an army. But it also is used in reference to a soldier, an individual soldier, who defends his position at all costs, even to the point of sacrificing his own life. To stand firm means to hold your ground regardless of the danger. Figuratively, and I'm quoting here from Bible.org, it means to hold fast to a belief, a conviction, or a principle without compromise regardless of what it costs you. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41? Watch and pray. You know what the word watch means? It doesn't mean to sit down on a chair and take out your binoculars and start watching around. It literally means be on your watch. Three, four-hour watches during the course of a night. You got the first four hours? Be on your watch. Don't go to sleep. Don't goof off. Don't get distracted. Be on your watch. So you can give a, hand off the thing to the second watch and the third watch so that all night long your group is protected. Be at your post in war. And by the way, the whole context here is war and conflict. It's talking about a soldier who will not budge. He won't give up. No compromise with error, no compromise with sin, and an unyielding maintenance of their testimony for the Word of God and Christ. Stand firm, don't move, either doctrinally or in your conduct. In chapter 4 and verse 1, notice please, Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. Same verb there. little different form, but the same verb. Be loyal to the gospel. 
Be loyal to your Savior. Stand firm has to do with character. It has to do with godliness, purity, virtue, holiness, and obedience, says Mr. Spurgeon. And how do you do that? He says, in one spirit, with a military mindset. Now, the word spirit there is not a capital S. That's not with the Holy Spirit. It's an, it's an inner compactness, one man said. It's an inner connectedness. But it also has to do with the armor, the outer armor that we've been given. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6? I'll read it to you, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, and put on the whole armor so that you can do and be and be firm in your position. The helmet. The helmet of salvation is being continually renewed in your mind. The breastplate of righteousness, that's not positional righteousness. That's daily practical righteousness living a holy life. The belt of truth, that's spiritual commitment. The shoes of peace, you have peace with God and you enjoy the peace of God on a day-to-day basis. The shield of faith, trusting in the Lord with all your heart, not leaning on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledging Him and He'll make your path straight. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And finally, I don't know about anybody else, but for me there's another piece of armor in verse 18, and it's prayer. Prayer is the glue that holds it all together. Those pieces of armor are something with an inner desire, an inner compactness, an outer armor. We are to stand and withstand and keep on standing no matter what happens. The idea, dear folks, is to remember we're in a war. I think the church in America doesn't understand that. We're in a battle, a conflict with the devil and his demonic forces. And we need to be armed every day. Why? So we can resist, so we can submit. James 4, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Please notice that order. 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What does he say? Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So many who call themselves soldiers in the army of Christ today have gone AWOL. They're sleeping, they're abandoning, they're collapsing, and they're failing. Where I come from, we used to say they're dropping off like flies. Oh, they used to. They used to, but they no longer do. What happened? They're not standing firm. Well, that's not the only thing he says. In verse 27, he says something else. Not only standing but also with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving together. The Christian faith is teamwork. It's to struggle alongside with people, not to struggle against people. 
Christianity is teamwork. It's working together for a common purpose. I want you to think for just a moment. I'm going to ask the question that I'm going to answer in a few moments. What is our common purpose? For what must we be striving side by side to continually be doing so that we can be what God wants us to be? Again, remember, the context is fighting, it's battling, it's contending. A gospel life is a life that is engaged engaged personally, corporately, and remember, this is hard work. It's labor as we strive side by side. One person has said it is unity with a purpose. He says this, you will never maintain a real unity in a static situation. If a church just stands around and tries to have unity, guess what? It'll never get it. The only way to maintain unity, the only way to keep an integral oneness to share common life is to be engaged in a common struggle. That's basic. When should it happen? Why should it be true? When everybody's focus is on the common goal, the common objective, and the common victory, there is a desperation about winning. Nobody really cares about all the internal issues. Get ready, get your shoes on, get your, get your steel-toed shoes on, as one lady used to say when I preached. Pastor Jerry Wise and I served together at New Buffalo Alliance. He said one time a lady came out of church, and she said, oh, Pastor, you stepped all over my toes. He said, oh, I'm really sorry. Why are you sorry? Because I was aiming for your heart. We know about athletic teams, don't we? They may fight and quarrel and argue, go to the newspaper, blah, 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 terrible discord until the championship game is on the line and then they come out of the locker room like a well-oiled machine. Why? They've forgotten all of the petty nonsense. They now have a common objective to gain through a common struggle. A general of an army knows the same thing. Any general on the face of the earth knows that which motivates unity among the troops is a sense of purpose with a desired goal. Any coach knows that what makes unity a reality on a team is when you stop being concerned about the internal discord and focus on the objective. And the only thing that concerns you is how you're going to get there, not who gets the credit, not whether or not you like the guy next to you. All that petty stuff is thrown out the window. Get ready. The internal stuff becomes absolutely inconsequential. If the church, living legacy, or any Bible-believing church can get its focus on the fact that it is engaged in an incredible spiritual warfare, and then it doesn't matter all that petty stuff that's sucking up so much time and taking so much energy. What matters, listen, is to communicate the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to lost sinners. Do you know why we're here this morning? For many, this is the end. Read this week, most people get their Christianity confined within four walls of a church. This is not the end, folks. This is just the beginning. 
What matters is to so impact this culture for Jesus Christ that his people receive the truth and are redeemed through the instrumentality of our fellowship and evangelism. That's what matters. When a church begins to see itself as an end in itself, it's a disaster. You'll see nitpicking. You'll see a major on minors. You'll see petty conflicts. You see all kinds of... You know why you're here this morning? I ain't the greatest commander-in-chief. I know that as far as leading. But you're here to be trained. That's my goal. Ephesians chapter 4 says that God has given pastors and teachers to do what? Equip. You know what the word equip is? It's the same word that's used for mending nets in, in the Gospel of Matthew. The disciples were called from their nets... Same idea. I'm here to help you sew up the holes in the nets. So that when you go out there, walk out that door, you take your net and start flinging it out and looking for fish. Isn't that what Jesus said? From now on, you'll be what? Fishers of men. You ain't going to look at those little slimy things that crawl through the, whether they're guppies or salmon or whatever it is. No, it's now men you're going to be fishing for. My job is to equip you, to give you the very best information I can from God's Word as He's given it to me and pass it on to you so that you can take, and guess who's supposed to do the work of ministry? Well, you are. You're the minister. Nope. Nope. I told you about John MacArthur, didn't you, one time? John first went to his church. Hadn't been there very long. And man, that place exploded. Grace Community Church went... Boom! And the buzz got around town. What in the world has happened to that little dinky church down there? They're just exploding. So one of the newspaper reporters went down. He said, I'm going to find out. So he spent a week with John and the guys. Next Sunday, headlines. The church with 900 ministers. Those folks were just, I hate to use the word naive, or simple in the right way, to believe that, you know, Pastor John, if you give this to us, I guess we got to do something with it. So from Monday through Saturday, they did what he asked them to do. Take this truth, share with your neighbors, share with your co-workers, pray and do everything you can to bring people to Jesus Christ. Folks, we face a world that rejects God, rejects Christ, and it's time for us to stand up and fight the battle for the souls of lost people. What is our purpose? What is our commission? What are our marching orders? Make disciples. You can't have a disciple until you have a Christian. You can't have a Christian until they hear the gospel. They're not going to hear the gospel until we tell them. Do you see the, see the connection there? Do you see the order? Preach the gospel. Share Christ. Declare that our God is on His throne. You're in trouble. He's provided in Jesus Christ all that's necessary. He commands you. He doesn't invite you. By the way, you'll find no invitation in the Word of God. It's a command. Turn from your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and God will save you. And if the Spirit of God attends that truthful preaching and sharing, He'll regenerate, He'll quicken their hearts, He'll bring them to the Savior, the person's life will be changed, and then our job really starts. We start discipling them. Notice what He said, it's the faith of the Gospel. The saving, living, and dying faith that only comes through the message. 
And any church that loses focus, that stops keeping the main thing, the main thing, seeking to win the lost, discipling new people, and I'm going to add one more thing, because it is one of my passions, being involved in taking the gospel to the nations, that's part of it, will lose its power, will lose its vibrancy, and in time will be set aside. Oh, it'll become a religious social club. Yeah. They may have the ABCs and impress the world. You know what the ABCs are in the religious world? Attendance, buildings, and cash. That seems to be the standard to judge whether or not your ministry is successful. How many did you have on Sunday morning? How many you got going to these small groups? How many you have coming to your fellowship? Oh, man, God's really blessing you. Really? Buildings, look at them. Someone said that's going to make tremendous kindling wood for the Antichrist when he comes. We pour more money into brick and mortar than we do into missions. We spend more money on bubble gum and dog food every year than we do on missions. We ought to hang our heads in shame. I'm talking Christian professing Christian people do that. Oh, we say that Jesus is everything to us. The gospel is priority. Salvation of sinners is lost. But do we live it? How does a church get to that point? You ever heard that song, Slow Fade? Fathers never leave their families in a day. Christians never leave the church. It's a slow process. Hebrews 2.1, be careful lest you drift slowly but surely from the salvation that God has provided. Someone explained it to me this way. When a church begins at the initial start, people get together and talking and praying, hey, let's start a church. We believe God wants us to. The excitement factor is out of this world. They are passionate about winning lost people, bringing them in, having fellowship and rejoicing in Jesus. And so they keep doing that for a little while. And then they kind of get to what we call the second generation. They kind of get comfortable. They're more concerned about fellowship than they are about evangelism. They're more concerned about this and that rather than winning people to the Lord. Oh, they'll have a revival service every once in a while. By the way, I don't know how you schedule a revival since it's the sovereign work of God when he gives it when he wants. But nonetheless, they have those services. And they pat themselves on the back. We're doing real good. But you see what? What happens is when they abandon the pursuit of winning lost people to Jesus Christ, the next generation is where so many of them are in our culture. They're surviving. They're just maintaining. They're more concerned about budgets than lost people. They're more concerned about other things. Their priorities are upside down. So what are the characteristics? Standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Verses 28 through 30, he gives a third word there, and that is suffering for the sake of Christ. Verse 28, he says, do it without fear. Notice the wording in verse 28, and not frightened. The idea is spooked like horses can be. Suddenly spooked. You ever seen that? I think I was five years old, and I'd never ridden a horse before. Oh, come on, Eddie, you can get on the horse. Go ahead. I said, I didn't want to. I was scared to death of that thing. Oh, come on, you can do it. So I got on this horse, and we're just kind of trotting along, and all of a sudden, somebody spooked it. He went out, and I fell off that thing, and I never got on another one for a long time. Rabbit, something, spooked suddenly. He said, don't be like that. Don't be frightened in your efforts to preach the gospel and be focused on what's important. 
As you stand and strive, there is going to be opposition. If you open your mouth about Christ, you're going to have enemies. If you say Jesus is the only way, you're going to be called what? A right-wing bigot. Or today, the big word is racist. Somehow they'll work it in. Arrogant. If you declare you must be born again, somebody's going to call you a fanatic. If you say the Bible is the word of God, somebody's going to call you an ignorant hick. If you say, I know I'm going to heaven, you'll be accused of thinking you're better than everybody else. And finally, if you dare to call adultery wrong and homosexuality sinful, somebody's going to call you a narrow-minded, judgmental bigot. And so it goes. If we are bold as Christians, we will annoy the world precisely because we are citizens of a different country. We live by a different set of principles. But notice what he says here. This is kind of an odd way to say it, but let me tell you what I think it means in verse 28. This is a clear sign to them, those that are opposing you, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What happens is they will show themselves opposed to the message of the gospel and sooner or later to destroy them. But God will save you. God will deliver you. God will rescue you. It's a clear, certain sign from God that that's what's going to happen. So do it without fear. Secondly, verse 29, do it without surprise. It's been granted. That word granted there is the, is the Greek word charis. There are two grace gifts in this verse. It's given to you to believe, praise the Lord, but also to suffer for His sake. Many Christians in the West, and I'm quoting from Miano again, many Christians in the West believe Christians in persecuted areas would have us pray for the end of their persecution. Don't you believe that for a moment? If you would ask persecuted Christians in Nigeria or Egypt, or Iraq, or Iran, or Kenya, say, okay, I'm, I'm glad to be here this week with you, and I appreciate all that I've learned from you, and I want to pray for you. And I'm going to take home to my people back in the USA prayer request. What do you want us to pray for you? Christians living and dying in areas where authentic persecution is commonplace would rather Western Christians pray that the persecuted church would, are you ready? Suffer well, and bring glory and honor to Christ. In fact, says Mr. Miano, I've heard multiple reports of Christians living in areas of persecution praying for their Western brothers and sisters. Our persecuted brethren pray that their brothers and sisters in the West, amidst all of their sinful distractions of wealth and ease and perversion and gluttony that the West has to offer, would learn how to suffer and learn how to suffer well. Believe it or not, they feel sorry for us. We're, we're great, we're blessed, we got all this stuff, and they're over there suffering. No, 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 no. They feel sorry for us. We think we got it, and we don't know. Remember Revelation chapter 3? What about the church of Laodicea? Rich, increased with goods, we don't need nothing. What does a messenger say? Poor, blind, and naked. They pray that we, the sophisticated Christians of the first world countries, would repent of our worldliness and live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and know that it's going to cost them something. Oh, Mr. Spurgeon says it so well. Never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in blood. The ship of the church never sails so gloriously as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer 
And we must die if we are to conquer this world for Christ. And at the last moment this morning before I came here, we're going to sing a hymn at the end of the service today. It's called, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? I want to pinpoint stanza number two in light of this point. Here's what the songwriter asks. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Without fear, we're to do it. Realizing without distractions. And thirdly, verse 30, without discouragement. And what does Paul do in verse 30? He says, I'm on the same team as you. You remember what happened 10 years ago in Acts chapter 16 when I came and we got thrown in jail? Guess what? I'm still in prison. So join me. Suffering is nothing wrong with that. We have a great family. It's a great club to join if you stand for Jesus. Paul counts suffering for the gospel a grace gift. Why? Because suffering changed his life and shaped his eternal perspective. Wow. One of the dangerous things for me is just to preach this and not live it. So I find myself more and more saying, Lord, let me be more than just a mouthpiece for your word. Let me be an example to the people of God, my own family, places I go every day. So Christians, here's the questions for us today. Am I living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? It's not so much that I have my theology all in place. I'm for theology. I'm, believe me, I'm, I love theology. But you can have so much theology that you get your hat size swells to a 54. But you're going to be an oddity if you don't live it. So will I. Am I standing firm in unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ at Living Legacy? Are we standing firm together? Are we striving hand in hand, side by side with the body for the faith of the gospel? Are we sharing the gospel? Can I ask you a question? Don't answer. Do you know what the gospel is? Never done this in 50 some years of ministry. One of these days I'm going to. I'm not going to have you sign it. I'm going to have you put, if you're a Christian, put down what you understand the gospel to be on a piece of paper. Could you do it? Could you share the truth and the verses or verse that goes along with it? I'm going to be bold. I, I believe the majority of people in churches this morning have no idea. They rejoice in it. You better preach it from the pulpit, but they have no idea what it is. Are you sharing the gospel? And, and I know this is true. Have you ever one time sat down with someone in some kind of setting, perhaps having built a relationship with them, and said, let me tell you the greatest news that there has ever been? Well, I'm scared. Well, join the club. Is that an excuse? I read something. My wife and I have this thing we try to read every night. Oh, here it is. On uh, page 241, this little article is called Night School. Listen to this. This is so encouraging. James, our security guard, was the first Ugandan we ever taught the Bible on how to live as, as Christ wants him to live. He latched onto that truth and his life was changed dramatically. Months passed and we watched him grow. Now James is very shy. 
He really has time only to work and sleep because they just work him to death. However, he said, God, I want to talk about you. God soon revealed to James that his ministry was right under his nose. Most guards for his security company ride in the back of one truck and are dropped off at their work sites. The ride to work was the perfect time for James to reach them with the good news. He didn't waste any time. He knew the gospel had the power to change lives. After all, it changed his. He went from one guard to the next, telling about his faith in Christ, offering them the opportunity to even just take a Bible course with him. Many were interested in learning what the Bible had to say. Others were interested in doing the study only as a relief from the boredom that they were facing. Motives didn't matter. They were studying the scriptures. This was an opportunity to feed their minds and hearts. God has the power to change lives. Are you ready for the consequence of this? Ready? James now runs a school. 1,800 students studying the Bible. If I want to, I can. God needs to change my want to. I need to repent of my sin for disobeying the gospel, which is take the gospel to lost people. Folks, you know what that's called in the Bible? Three letters. The first letter is S, the last letter is N, and the middle letter is I. Therefore, James, therefore to him that knows to do good and does not do it, it's called a mistake. A weakness. No, it's called sin. So if I know that God has commanded me to share the gospel and I keep making excuse, and believe me, the longer I make excuses, it's like calluses on your hand. It's so hard to change. It's a matter of getting before God, asking Him, Lord, forgive me for not doing this. I'm going to do this even if I stumble over my tongue. I'm going to tell people about Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell them what you've done in my life. I'm going to tell them that there's good news in the midst of a world of bad news. And I want you to bless my words to the salvation of their soul. Psalm 120, or 139 verses 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God. Try me. See if there's something wrong there and change it and cleanse me from my sin. And in just a moment, we're going to come to the communion table. You know what this is? We've mentioned this before. It's a means of grace. It's a tool in God's hand to strengthen our hearts and our resolve and our focus of life. This is a reminder to me of what Jesus Christ endured to save me from my sins. And the last marching orders of the Son of God was to take this message, make disciples, baptizing, teaching to the ends of the earth. I'll be with you until that time. Take it, he said in Acts chapter 1, to the farthest corners of the earth. So beginning where we are today to where we go this week to where we might go this year, everywhere we go, it should be a constant pressure, good positive pressure on our hearts to see people come to know Christ. I'll tell you something else that I've seen. I'm not, I'm not criticizing living legacy and I'm not judging you because I haven't been here that long. But the longer a church goes without seeing people converted, the more dangerous it is. They don't know what it's like. A guy like me is preaching some foreign... What planet are you from, Ed? Let God begin to work in our hearts. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. It might be a great idea. Some of us to get together during the course of the week and just meet here and say, God, Help. How long has it been since we've seen someone converted to Jesus Christ? How long has it been since we've seen a Christian delivered from the power of sin? 
How long has it been since we've seen the gospel go and make a powerful impact in Hershey and Harrisburg and Pennsylvania and Nigeria and Mauritania and India? How long has it been? Well, it's been too long. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our self-centered ways. We're so busy with everything else. We've neglected the most important thing. God, bring us back to where the main thing is the main thing and help us to stay on the main thing. This meal is meant to help us do that. Let's receive from God by faith what all He intends for us so that we might do that. Again, if you're not a Christian and you're here and you don't know the Lord, there's only one life worth living and that's knowing Christ. Missionary said it, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. If you've never believed on Jesus, oh my friend, you ain't got no clue what you're missing. It's great. It's wonderful. Tough, yeah. I think it was Jack Nicholas who said it. No pain, no gain. Wasn't spiritual, but it's right on.